BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This work to try to figure out wait, what wait, he'd what, done. what are you talking about? He had a gun. He was about to shoot us. I, I, I thought we were going to die. We didn't die. We didn't. He did. Because he couldn't face Who cares about him? He's nothing. He's the result of faulty programming. He's the, the, the juice concentrate of a system that needs to be fed dead bodies in order to survive. He's boring and predictable, like the most basic code cycling over and over again until all the women are destroyed and the world just burns. What are you... What are you saying? I'm saying you want the killer to have meaning and he doesn't have meaning. He's just... He's just a killer, I don't... At the welcome dinner, Sean said to me, you know how they say there are no atheists in foxholes? There are no atheists on the moon either. She... Stop killing spiders when she came back on Earth. You couldn't harm anything living if you understood how much eternal night there is and how precious little life. And what a shit show stuck down here on Earth, huh? A couple of quotes from the series Murder at the End of the World. The latest arcane creation from Britt Marling and Zal Batman Gleesh. The clips show a dichotomy of viewpoints. One ponders on why get philosophical and mystical with the state of the universe, when the Sethian idea of a bad software creation full of broken code and hungry algorithms is all you need as an explanation. That's the black iron prison for ya. And all the excuses amount to defending an abusive husband or taking the side of a captor in this cosmic Stockholm Syndrome. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. The other scene is also Sethian and state that in this vast void we call the universe, there are points of creative light, of miraculous life, and that's what we should focus on, even
than nurture. You know that quote from Jung. As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light of meaning in the darkness of mere being. Or as Tobias Churton wrote, Gnosis is the religion of the artist, and the artist is simply man doing what man does best, being a joyful co-creator, manifesting light in the dark universe. <laughs> we just had a near-life experience! What do you think? I would say that both Sethian dichotomies should be employed in balance, and that's how we not only get out, but restore the multiverse. Chew that philosophical bubblegum while walking theologically. As far as a woman on the moon, I'm sure Ola Wolny has thoughts, and there are already many jokes on TikTok about what would happen. And as far as murder at the end of the world, it's pretty good content, but not anywhere near the OA. That's my humble opinion. But now you have the dichotomy. Hold on to it and think of the Gospel of Thomas saying number 11. Jesus said, This heaven will pass away, and the one above it will pass away. The dead are not alive, and the living will not die. During the days when you ate what is dead, you made it come alive. When you are in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were one, you became two. But when you become two, what will you do? But the advantage to meeting others in the meantime is that one of them may present you to yourself. Your life is yours to create. Sounds like something a uh, high Dennis Hopper would say in the movie Speed. But you get the idea. You are an idea. And I welcome you to AM Bytenostic Radio. We don't take prisoners but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything, but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. Divided we stand, together we rise. And we're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. Hitting bottom isn't a weekend retreat. It's not a goddamn seminar. Stop trying to control everything and just let go. My name is Miguel Connor, your pompadus of Gnosis. Thanks for being here, and thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. We hold those dichotomies and take that inner journey into the undergrounds of the unconscious for our forgotten dreams and remembered divinities. As Jim Quick said, If an egg is broken by outside force, life ends. If broken by inside force, life begins. Great things always begin from the inside. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? Simple as that. And the journey to our true selves is the same as the journey to the most distant star. 
As above, so below, said Hermes Trismegistus, speaking through Apollonius of Tyana. As within, so without, Hermes further said, laughing at the fall of archons during his age. What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. We need that spiritual tech to take that inner journey or astral flight to laugh at the woman on the moon while we go to the final frontier. One of the greatest of all spiritual tech is theurgy. Ready to tap into it as you tap into your misplaced childhoods and paradises lost? Get off my tits! For this, we have the honor of hosting at the Virtual Alexandria, Petey Newman. He will discuss his new and amazing book, Theurgy, Theory and Practice, The Mysteries of the Ascent to the Divine. This will likely be one of the best interviews of the year, as you will likely agree. But by Odin's dingleberries, we did a bit over an hour. Daniel was negotiating thunderstorms that shut his power off at times, while I was negotiating a snowstorm that was, yes, shutting my power off at times. We had to reschedule a few times that day, and the connection was bloody wonky. Yet we did put in our hearts and souls, as you will also likely agree. Let's go, let's go, on board, let's go. For all subs, as also a useful bonus for your spiritual tech arsenal, I'll include an interview with Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman on his book, A Theurgist Book of Hours. It's another killer interview. So consider this a mini-workshop on learning to take those flights past the woman on the moon, the stellar archons, and toll-booth-heavy stargates until you reach the monad or your higher self. Really one and the same. One day you'll realize that you've had not just one or two past or future existences, but that you were and are everybody and everything that has ever been or will ever be. Considering this fantastic and important topic, I would whip out this quote by Eric Davis, which says it all. The Neoplatonists ascend through the spheres, the Gnostics' sudden awakening, the desert monks' rejection of the Ilan Vital is not simply a philosophical error or the mark of patriarchy, but is fired by an intensely lucid yearning of the highest of goals, liberation. We don't need to expiate our crimes, but to discover and remember the way out of a false world created through no fault of our own. And this way out is way out. Gnostic texts crackle with a peculiar energy, an almost sci-fi sensibility of alien gods and supramundane universes of light. Though not the first cosmic dualists, the Gnostics may have been the first spiritual off-worlders. Venerable tradition of sorcerers, shamans, and other visionaries who have developed and perfected the art of dream travel, the so-called 
lucid dream state where by consciously controlling your dreams you're able to discover things beyond your capacity to apprehend in your awake state. And just as good, let us end with this poem by Albert Gerard, which also tells you what you need to do. The name of the poem is Initiation. Come, my child, over there, guarded by an angel, treasurer of the secrets of forbidden knowledge. There bleeds for corrupted hearts a strange vine. Twined with the hissing snake of paradise lost. The angel sleeps when I wish. Come, my beautiful child, eat with wanton teeth the clusters where my mouth has bitten. Tomorrow you will know the cost of the wine and the power of the vintage your elder has sold you. You will watch yourself act and think and live You will be at once the reader of the book, the obscure writer of that hideous book, and you will die very old, cultivating your pain, for having abdicated the scepter of your ignorance, which raised you to the height of heroes and the gods. body was forged in a star. This matter, this body is mostly just empty space after all, and solid matter is just energy vibrating very slowly and there is no me. There never was. The electrons of my body mingle and dance with the electrons of the ground below me and the air. I'm no longer breathing. And I remember... There is no point where any of that ends, and I begin. I remember I am energy, not memory, not self. My name, my personality, my choices all came after me. I was before them, and I will be after, and everything else is pictures, picked up along the way, fleeting little dreamlets printed on the tissue of my dying brain. And I am the lightning that jumps between. I am the energy firing the neurons, and I'm returning. Just by remembering, I'm returning home. It's like a drop of water falling back into the ocean, of which it's always been a part. All things, apart, all of us, apart, you, me, and my little girl, and my mother, and my father, everyone who's ever been, every plant, every animal, every atom, every star, every galaxy, all of it. More galaxies in the universe than grains of sand on the beach, and that's what we're talking about when we say God. The one, the cosmos, and its infinite dreams. We are the cosmos dreaming of itself. It's simply a dream that I think is my life every time. 
But I'll forget this. I always do. I always forget my dreams. But now, in the split second, in the moment I remember, the instant I remember, I comprehend everything at once. There is no time. There is no death. Life is a dream. It's a wish. Made again and again and again and again and again and again and on into eternity. And I am all of it. I am everything. I am all. I am that I am. This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Petey Newman to discuss his book, Theurgy, Theory and Practice, The Mysteries of the Ascent to the Divine. PD, or may I call you Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. And yes, you may you may call me Danny. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I really enjoyed your book. And I got a lot of good insights. And I know any reader is going to find something valuable for either your scholarly or uh, practice uh, life. So, and with us too, we've got the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I've got the urge for theurgy this morning. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, Danny. Well, so tell us a little bit about how you came to write this wonderful book. I've been involved in Freemasonry and um, Rosicrucianism and Martinism and the, those practices really piqued my interest in terms of uh, ritual theory and rites of passage in general. And um, at some point, I turned my attention towards the grimoire tradition and working through and kind of digesting the Solomonic grimoires, you you start to see real quick that the word theurgy is thrown around a good bit. And while I do think what they're describing in there could be qualified as theurgy, um, it didn't seem to match up with what I was reading when I tr decided to go back to the origins of theurgy into the Chaldean oracles and the, the Platonists and Neoplatonists, they seem to be describing very different things. And the conclusion I came to was that uh, in the case of the grimoires, it seems like what they've, they're doing is they're taking, um, they're basically taking household Greek religion and trying to, kind of conform it to the rituals in these grimoires and the the Christian symbolism gets switched out for Greek household religious symbolism. And, and again, I think some of those, in some of those cases, you could argue that it meets the criteria of theurgy. But once I looked at what the theurgists themselves were saying, and in particular, the fact that in their minds, what they were doing could be discussed in terms of Homer in for the theory um, and the practice of theurgy, they consistently explained it in Homeric terms, which is paradoxical, uh, especially since there's no evidence of the word theurgy existing prior to 
the second century after Christ. And Homer, of course, is way before that. And the worldview presented in the Homeric epics and the, the picture of the soul we get from Homer is very different than the one that we get from Plato and the um, kind of the, the metaphysical unpacking of Plato in the Neoplatonist and, and the Chaldean oracles. So that's what really got me looking deeper was I, I wanted to take these theorists at their word and say, well, why do you think? And, and do you have justification for projecting or finding this, this type of a, a practice in Homer? You know, that makes sense. Yeah. It reminds me, uh, recently, uh, interviewed Dr. David Litwa and, he was talking about how the Nessenes were tapping into Homer in a sort of reverse exegesis to find out insights. And obviously Simon Magus and his mythology and theology is very dependent on Homer sort of taking what he needed. But as we unpack your book, the audience probably wants to know, well, what is theurgy? I know you write in your book, quote, Theurgy is a process of anabasis or magical ascent whereby practitioners such as the Neoplatonists, including Porphyry, and especially Iamblichus and Proclus, achieved henosis or mystical union with a deity, the demiurge or the one. Is that a good definition or should we add a little bit more? I, I think that's an adequate definition. And the... The, the word itself is a combination of two Greek words, one meaning God or the gods, and the other meaning to work with or the work of. So it's essentially God work in any other, any number of ways you can kind of combine those two ideas. So we could see it as the, the practitioners work with the gods or the gods work through the practitioners. But in any case, it, what it basically amounts to is this, uh, what is called anagoge, this this re return of the soul towards its origins and eventual union with it through this process of anabasis, this um, a spiritual ascent through the various levels of the heavens. And prior to Plato, we that kind of a, an approach is very limited. You don't see many of the pre-Socratic philosophers talking about soul ascent. You get a couple where there is soul flight, but they're not talking about traveling through the heavens. They're talking about more like leaving the body and traveling through the world to other, other locations. The closest thing we get to soul flight in those early days is catabatic, where with figures like Parmenides, we have these, these philosopher poets traveling into the underworld. And the underworld has always been accessible to man. Granted, it's after death that this usually is believed to take place when they go to Hades. But Mount Olympus, quote-unquote heaven, has always been the province of the gods. Men weren't even imagining themselves going there prior to Plato. But when Plato comes along, he reorientates this concept of soul flight from a catabatic descent into the underworld. And he accomplishes this by allegorizing Hades. The minute he says, 
that Hades is right here. We're in Hades now. And that the descent from a purely divine state of being to an incarnated material state of being is the fall into Hades. And once that's accomplished, there's nowhere to go but up. And that's what happens at at this point. Soul flight becomes a flight into the heavens and a return to that spiritual state of being where the the hypostases exist with at the top of which and we might think of the hypostases as as the quote unquote pagan counterpart to the holy trinity um and at the top of this is the father the one which is called either the monad or the pege which means the source so the monad means the one Makes perfect sense. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when I read uh, Anabasis, I'm already thinking of uh, Xenophon's Anabasis, which is this great story, which the movie The Warriors is based off. But I guess mm. the Warriors, it was Greeks trying to escape the Persian Empire, just like the Warriors were trying to escape through New York. So it's, uh, yeah, it's got different levels. Well, I guess, uh, Daniel, the question would be, what would separate the spiritual tech of theurgy to something like the uh, ascent of uh, Mithras in the mystery religions, or as you talk about uh, the Gnostics and Gnosis? You you mentioned Birger Pearson, a past guest and a translator of the Nag Hammadi Library, who thinks that the Gnostic ascent is very close to theurgy. What what would be the differences or similarities? I'm in total agreement there. Um, The clear, you know, the, the Mithras mysteries, the Mithraic mysteries, we don't know a whole lot about them. We know enough about them to get some, some basic ideas. Um, And when we analyze the, the Mithrae, for instance, the, the various caves and structures in which they would conduct these rituals, there's plenty of evidence that, their model of heavenly ascent is the same to this, the same as this theurgic model that Porphyry presents in his commentary on uh, Book Thirteen of Homer's Odyssey, which is the what he calls the Cave of the Nymphs. Um, and the the Gnostic model is naturally similar too. Um, we know, for instance, from Porphyry, who was Plotinus's student. Plotinus was the He's considered the father of Neoplatonism, and when he was head of his academy, there were Gnostics circling his his school that were involved there. And Porphyry lists a number of texts that were circulating at this time that verge on theurgic literature, and we it's interesting because we didn't we didn't have examples of these texts outside of those titles until the Nag Hammadi texts were discovered in 1945 i believe and then we see oh not only are these books real this is what they say and there's a great study by um a man who who passed away shortly after he wrote it he died too soon um absolutely brilliant man named Zeke Mazur um, oh, yeah, his real yeah. name is Alexander and he wrote the Platonizing Sethian, this book on the Platonizing Sethian yeah, Gnostics. Yeah, fantastic book. Um, but he demonstrates that that 
Plotinus's big innovation is that his process of ascent and return to the one and union with the one is very naturally a reversal of his philosophy, of his cosmology. So when he explains how the, the many come from the one, how we go from the state of, of, of one God, one thing, one entity or being that is beyond being, goes through the processes of creation and making the gods and the universe and everything in it, how those stages are mirrored in the process of ascent. So what he's basically doing is reversing creation and in, in an individual man's ascent, he's basically going through Genesis backwards in Judeo-Christian terms. And the problem that Mazur uncovers the when when trying to kind of piece all this out is that there's an anomaly in Plotinus's model that on the return there's this this stage in the process that does not have a reflection in the cosmology and that only makes sense with recourse to these specific Gnostic texts that were circulating in his academy. And it has specifically to do with what he calls the autophony. It, it would take up our entire right. time to, to <laughs> go through that whole argument. But long story short, y yes, absolutely. The, the, the Sethian Gnostics especially were practicing what we could definitely call theurgy. Yeah, for sure. I always call these guys spiritual off-worlders, those cats mm. in Alexandria, the Neoplatonists, the Gnostics, the Merkabah Jews, the Hermeticists, because, yeah, the, as April DeConnick said, they're, they're just not like traveling the Zodiac to have fun. They're going beyond to make contact with this ultimate consciousness. Like you said, the one, the father, the monad, uh, whatever you could. So they were, they were all innovative. And even as uh, Dylan Byrne says, when you read Plotinus, he's not just answering the Sethians. You can tell he's got the Sethians on his mind, but he's also got the Valentinians. There's a lot sure. of he's quoting like the tripad tractate. So he's 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 wrestling with the Gnostics, and Burns thinks that he's Plotinus is indebted to the Gnostics because that's how that's what fuels his I don't know what you want to call it uh, indignation ego whatever you want. Mm -hmm. there's no lack of ego with uh, Plotinus that's for sure <laughs> that's right that's right he he's a he's a character and, <laughs> and he does cover his base as well with his his section on you know against the Gnostics and mm -hmm. his Enneads but to be fair um his worldview is fairly dualistic. You know, he does see matter. Um, he yeah, he uses the word. He identifies matter as evil. You know, and and that's pretty close to the Gnostic dualistic model. But what he has difficulty with is the 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 conception of the demiurge as evil, as this kind of the the blind idiot god of of some Gnostic schools, but this picture of the Demiurge, I think is, is a natural outcome of the circulation of Plato's Timaeus, which is where we get the Demiurge that the, the, the noose anthropomorphized and organizing the cosmos and creating the world soul and animating the universe. We get this picture of him as Demiurge of course means the builder or the craftsman. And when Freemasons, 
pray to the great architect of the universe. The, this is what they're praying to is this, this imminent aspect of deity, not necessarily the transcendent aspect, which is arguable that how can we know that that has anything to do with us? It's transcendent. It's beyond us. But when you have that picture floating around among a group of religious practitioners who look to Genesis, the, the Hebrew book of Genesis as scripture, that book starts to look a little bit different because in the first chapter we have <clears throat> man created as a hermaphroditic spiritual being and he's created by Elohim. And Elohim is problematic in its own right because not only is it a plural so it could mean gods, but it's a feminine plural. So it could, it could, it's arguable. It means goddesses. Oh. And by the time we get to chapter two, Elohim disappears. And Elohim in chapter one is translated just as God. When we get to chapter two, the deity referenced is Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah. And it's translated in the King James Bible as Lord God. But this figure then creates man of the dust of the ground. And for the the Gnostics, this was an indication that it's a second figure, a demiurgic god, who has now trapped the hermaphroditic spirit created by Elohim in matter, created it of the dust of the ground, trapped it in matter, and then separated the feminine component from it in the form of Eve. And that once you get that clicks, you you it, you can see how the demiurge from went from this Platonic craftsman to the Gnostic evil ruler right. by looking at Genesis in these terms. And this this has always been really fascinating to me because I think that's a valid reading, even if it's clearly not what the author intended. No, I think that's really well said. And yeah, Plotinus does talk bad about the body. And then even Plato, sometimes it's hard. It's like one book, he'll say, oh, the, the creation is good. But then in the other one, he'll talk about the body's a prison. And I tell people, just embrace the paradox and the ambiguity. You're going to miss the, the forest from the trees if you try to figure out where these people stand. Um, that's right, yeah. I think there's evidence that the chapter one and chapter two are different authors, because if you notice the way they break chapter one and chapter two up, it's fudged so that they moved. Uh, I forget which way this is. They moved the beginning of chapter two back so that it looks like it's 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 supposed to be the same, you know, flowing thing, but it's not. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt that as many epochs and eons exist in the in the production of those texts i wouldn't doubt that one bit and there's no shortage of traditions of writing in the name of the person whose spirit you're writing in you know people write as hermes or as moses right. um and in regard to the the platonic texts and the paradoxes inherent in them i've always found iamblichus's argument fascinating he he makes the argument that there's a specific order you're meant to read them so that you start with that soma sema argument, the body is a prison kind of thinking, and work your way up to the more transcendent doctrines that that returns matter to its spiritual place. So you kind of 
it's almost like with alchemy where the carrot is dangled for the initiate that, oh, you're going to get to make gold. And they don't find out until they accomplish this, that gold was a metaphor the whole time kind of thing. Now, granted, there are plenty of schools trying to transmute base <laughs> metals into gold, but I don't think that's what uh, Zosimos was up to. No. <laughs> but I think with with Plato, the early texts, he's trying to meet them. And I don't mean early in terms of temporal. I mean, in terms of, of Iamblichus' order of reading them. Um, he's trying to meet the novice where he is and give him something he can relate to and then walk him out of it no that makes perfect sense because even as a uh, christian bull was saying uh you look at the corpus hermeticum and people think oh the hermeticists they're all so lovey-dovey and love and light but no it's uh half of it is very dark mm -hmm. evil spirits the body you're trapped in archons and so he posits that it might have been the same as Iamblichus that the initiate starts with like, oh, the world sucks, you're trapped and all that. And then you get the, ah, uh, the father, the news, the rising. Or it could have been the opposite. You start the delusion, ah, oh, the world's a great place. And then they pull the rug is like, no, you're trapped. You got to get out. So Right. That's that pessimism argument that the, the apex of the hermetic system was this sort of pessimism. But I think both Shaw and bull and if i recall correctly even hanegraaff are they yeah. they refute that and say no the pessimism comes at the beginning you know and, and you work your way up to this you know the world really is a, a unique phenomenal place to be yeah all will be well if you mm -hmm. if you wake up and take the journey <laughs> that's right that's right so it seems that the maybe the source code or the uh the trigger for these spiritual off-worlders, as I call them, might be the, what, Chaldean Chronicles, right? Could you tell the viewers a little bit about it, who might not know? About the oracles? Oh, sorry, oracles. Yeah, I said chronicles, my mistake. No, that's okay. That's okay. We're on the same page. Um, so the the Chaldean Oracles, um, the, the they were written by a father-son team of what we would now call theurgists, but of course prior to them that word didn't exist. They might have been called practitioners of Goetia or magicians. Um, we don't know how they would have been viewed at the time, but it's a father-son team that is doing something very similar to what I like to say that John D. and Edward Kelly were doing. The father would have made these calls, these invocations to... Um, various deities, namely, and most especially, oracular deities like Apollo and Hecate. And the son, the second Julian, Julian Jr., would have been in the position of a sort of Edward Kelly that could see or hear or participate in the deities who answered these calls. And he would produce these oracles. Now, in, in the case of the Chaldean oracles, there's another player involved that is very interesting to me that they, that they they phrase it this way, but the oracles were delivered by the spirit, by the soul of Plato. And Plato becomes the mouthpiece for Apollo and Hecate. And it's this series of utterances that have not survived in full. Um, we only have fragments that are given to us mainly by 
the Neoplatonists and by later Christians um, who are refuting some of the statements in the oracles. But they basically paint a picture of the cosmos that is very similar to the metaphysics in Plato's Timaeus dialogue and lay, lay the, the foundation for a practical theurgy and how how you would how you would accomplish something like that and do you see their source uh what part of the world did this come out of well the the father is often called julian the, the chaldean and the son is often called julian the theurgist mm -hmm. but we don't know if they were actually chaldeans um back in that time because of the association of astrology with the Chaldeans, which was the true Chaldeans, it was their art, uh, because of that close association, basically anyone who discussed an astrologized cosmic view of the world became labeled Chaldean. Um, but that being said, the oracles themselves are constructed in the the homeric model they're in dactylic hexameter um in a lot of cases they're they're employing homeric greek um which is different from modern greek um so the, they seem to be straddling the fence there have one foot in chaldean world whether that's a an imagined Chaldean world or not, we can't really say. And the other foot is firmly within the Greek poetic tradition that we also see Parmenides, Xenophanes, Empedocles. They also wrote in the same way, the dactylic hexameter. And dactylic hexameter is how all the oracles were produced. If you had been around at the time and went to Delphi, for instance, you know, the priestess, the Pythia, would enter her frenzy, her state of mania, and she would pronounce an oracle that that was spontaneous and not organized. But those priests would take it and recast it in dactylic hexameter um, because that was seen as the language that that the gods spoke in largely. And so dactylic hexameter is firmly part of this tradition and, and Chaldean oracles are, are in, in that meter. Makes sense. And why do you think Hecate is so important to the Chaldean oracle and theurgy in general? I mean, what I'm assuming she is in Homer, she's a psychopomp. Uh, she is uh, obviously, uh, yeah, again, she's a psychopomp. She leads Persephone. Uh, she helped, uh, She's a helper like uh, Hermes in the Homeric epics and all that. Mm -hmm. Is that it or what else? Um, Hecate is an, an anomalous figure right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the earliest uh, examples we have, because Homer survives in a number of different forms. It's not just we have the Iliad and the Odyssey. These things exist written down by different people at different times. And in the earliest example we have of <clears throat> the scene where Agamemnon slays his daughter uh, Iphigenia, I believe is her name. He, he wants to set sail and he's unable to set sail. And the prophet, the oracle 
on site tells him that he has to sacrifice his daughter to the goddess in order to make amends for this for slighting her which is what's keeping them at bay and in the the popular version of the iliad she's sacrificed she's killed by her father as a sacrifice but in this earlier fragment of this scene, which is discussed by um, Sarah Isles Johnston in her book, uh, I believe it's in The Restless Dead, she talks about how Iphigenia became Hecate. She immediately turns into Hecate. And at this time, Hecate was kind of a pro the protectress of unmarried women, of maidens. And the picture we have now of Hecate, say in modern witchcraft traditions, is very different. You know, she's this kind of scary, chthonic um, mother of demons or of demons, you know. But back then, she was viewed very differently. But this protector of of young women, that begins to make sense when we look at her role in the Eleusinian Mysteries and her role in comforting Demeter when Persephone has been abducted and taken to the underworld. And there's, of course, multiple versions of that myth, where in some of them, Hermes is sent to get her out and bring her back to the land of the living. And another version, Hecate herself goes down there and gets her. Um, but that makes Hecate, like you just said, psychopompic. Whereas for the Greeks, that's normally a job for Hermes or if we're talking about the Chaldeans, it's a job for Venus, which was Ishtar or Inanna, who descended into Kerr, the, the Mesopotamian version of the underworld. And she's able to get back out again. That's the trick. Any man can get in the underworld. The trick <laughs> is getting out again. Um, but Hecate has that quality. And this gives her a liminal quality, a liminal aspect. And so she is seen as kind of a buffer between two opposing states of being. And in the Neoplatonic model, the world soul, who in the oracles is conflated with Hecate, the world soul is Hecate. Um, Suke, soul, is this buffer between the noose, the intelligible world, the demiurge, and the hylic world, um, the material world. And it becomes this sort of womb that the forms pour themselves into in the form of logoi, seeds, that then are birthed into this world as actual beings and entities and things and qualities. And in the Chaldean oracles, she, she has this twice over. In some fragments, it looks like three times over, where she is discussed as being this girdle this membrane that exists not only between the hylic world and the, the intelligible world, but there's a second Hecate, which we could talk about it as a second Hecate or a second role of Hecate or uh, one of her functions, but she also separates the monad, the one, from his intellect, from the second party of the hypostases. So she gets elevated because of this liminal aspect. She gets elevated to kind of the, the bridge that connects all the disparate parts of reality into a working whole. And that which makes sense when, when she's 
thought of as the world soul because each of us have soul, but we have soul to the degree that we participate in the world soul. And she becomes like the glue that holds all this together and makes it move as kind of one unit. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Wow, that's really well said. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, how the Gnostics and like uh, the the Gospel of the Egyptians and others will split up Sophia, and mm-hmm. she has similar roles to the to the Hecate. And so this was going on for sure. And it's interesting too, Daniel, because I made this remark, and Sorita Deste agreed with me. And if there's anybody who knows about Hecate in the spoiler, it would be her. But I said the thing that most modern occultists miss is that. She is a trickster goddess. She's like Hermes. Mm. And uh, I don't I'm sure you see that in your circles, uh, spiritual circles. But yeah, we want what a trickster god or deity will give us. Innovation, transformation, uh, 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 passage through the doorway to higher worlds or altered state of consciousness. But we don't want what a trickster always does, which is turn our life upside down and destroy our whole system. We don't want to let go of the nine to five and the comfortable house, right? That's we right. Just... <laughs> and that, and that, that's that's part and parcel of the oracles in general. Um, I, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Peter Kingsley's book on Parmenides, where yeah. the his people, they you know, they have to leave their their home. And they don't know where to go, so they go to the oracle, um, and she tells them that they they have to go to this certain place. And well, that's how they understand it, you know. But it ends up being that they've acted on what they were sure she said, you know, for for all this time, and everything has just gone to shit until they finally <laughs> encounter this this stranger that. You know, he's like, what are you doing here? You can't grow food here. What are you even doing? You know, and they tell him, well, the the Oracle told us, you know, and this is what she said. And he laughs and he says, oh, no, you just misunderstood. That's a play on words. What she really meant is this. And once they act on that interpretation, which was not the obvious one, everything becomes 
peachy, you know, and back to life as, as expected, but it's that trickster element of, you, you know, you, you better be careful what you wish for. Cause you just might get that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, there's no free lunch in this universe as much as people want to believe it. And the other universes too. And uh, uh, Vance, what do you think? Do you have any questions? How urgent is your theurgy? Uh, always, <laughs> always urgent. Yeah, um, uh, Danny, um, I was wondering, the theurgy, um, is there an aspect of theurgy where that's similar to magic where they use the gods to um, affect changes in the world as well as, you know, ascending? Um, well, it depends on which theurgist you ask. Yombacus is very quick to make a strong distinction between theurgy and any of the other magics, which thaumaturgy, magia, goetia, all of these things. He, he really spends a lot of energy making sure we don't mistake theurgy with those things. But that being said, the methods of the theurgists are very similar, if not identical, to those we find in the Greek magical papyri. And in this text, we have a lot of compelling the gods, you know, almost at times even threatening the gods that if you don't do this, you know, I won't make my sacrifice to you or or I'll make sure my family doesn't worship you. You know, it can get pretty ah. harsh, but with with porphyry he introduces this idea of of divine persuasion you know that we don't compel the gods as much as persuade them and we see that with parmenides for instance when he goes to the underworld and he wants the gates of hades opened but the goddess won't open them and the the daughters of the sun who are um hastening in him in this chariot down that road to that gate they use cunning and trickery and sweet words to convince her to do it um and so there's a fine line there um and and there's also kind of a paradox because the theurgists talk about how the gods give us their means of invocation. So let's say that that Hecate comes to you in, in a trance state and tells you that you can invoke her or evoke her by doing this specific thing and saying this specific thing. And let's say that the thing you're supposed to say involves a compulsion. Well, it's not outside of the realm of possibility and the 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 theurgist's way of thinking that the god can tell you to command them they can tell you to <laughs> compel you to do things and if that's the case it's fine but outside of that it makes they're ready they will readily admit it makes no sense to compel a god to work for you so it's a matter of style i guess it really is yeah and the, the divine persuasion that's one thing that crystal addy and her book um on divination and neoplatonism the oracles of the gods she points out that in porphyry's on the philosophy of oracles that he he talks about that as being um part and parcel to the way this model works the way theurgy works um but so yeah it's nuanced i guess we could say Okay. Yeah. By, by the way, um, I, before I mentioned about the uh, two books of Genesis, you know, where the first, the first one is obviously kind of benign and more like the monad. And the second one is definitely the Demiurge. 
the um, the the uh, the second chapter includes the last two verses of uh, of the first chapter, except that they've moved a chapter two back. In other words, thus the heavens and the earth was completed by the seventh day. Da da da. Those are that's the beginning of chapter two, but that's the end of chapter one. End, I, I got you. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the four the fourth verse of chapter two is this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So <laughs> that's obviously the beginning, the mm-hmm. real beginning. It seems uh, like two different models that are both equally valid, probably because of, of how long they've been around and how widespread they are that are competing, right. but yes, but they don't want to see them as competing. They want to rectify them in a way, but it certainly led to, some interesting cosmologies when we get to the point of the Gnostics, especially with the figure of the serpent entering that garden and um, yeah. convincing them to eat this fruit that the, the, the second deity says, if you eat that, it's going to kill you. And of course the, the popular explanation is, well, it didn't kill them immediately, but it invited death. They would have been yeah. immortal otherwise, you know, <laughs> but, but the snake is quick to say, see that it did not kill you. It it opened your eyes. Now you know that you are just as valid as that God because both of you descend from the Elohim that we mentioned in chapter one. Becomes a very, very just fascinating kind of cosmology and the 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 role of the the tree, that fruit, um, has all kinds of implications for for psychedelic research and the ambrosia the nectar of the gods (laughs) that's right yeah soma you know all the those uh those drinks that are also gods that are also sacrifices you know it gets pretty complicated but it's easy to see how that same kind of thinking feeds into the christian mythos when when christ at the last supper he's feet he's telling them to act in theophagy eat my body you know eat drink my blood and i was just speaking with someone else about this same phenomena that in in this scene when christ says this do in remembrance of me the word he uses for remembrance is a conjugation of anamnesis so anyone educated in Plato, educated at all, because being educated at the time meant being educated in Plato, anybody educated that would have heard that at the time would have immediately thought, not only is he talking about Plato, but he's telling me that by doing this, it will cause me to have some remembering of the divinity of my soul, really kind of changes the whole um, dynamic with that verse. Wow. Yeah, and most scholars pretty much agree that Genesis 1 and 2 are different. And the first one is a creation of the hermaphrodite and mm-hmm. probably yeah. the, another tradition, two different, there was maybe a cult of Yahweh and a cult of the Elohim. But you mentioned drugs, Daniel. Uh, and I love the work you do in your book because uh, obviously the Gnostics, there's a good evidence they were using some sort of mind-altering substance from Marcus the Magician to, as you bring up that, plant i can never uh i I can never pronounce in the book of you that uh what pliny the elder used it to summon the ghost of homer yes that's a fascinating one it is it is and 
But and I didn't even know this one, but people have said that the Ophian Christians or the Ophites use a white oil from the tree of life. That could be a entheogen. Uh, do we have anything on the theurgists, you think, doing entheogens, or are we just speculating right now? Well, we we, we have Iamblichus mentions pharmaca in his De Mysterious, and pharmaca is the word that in the, the Christian Bible, for instance, gets translated as sorcery. Right. Um, in its earliest usage, form, pharmaca meant the use of plants for magical purposes. Now, later, it it came to mean any magical act who the whose mechanism of of affecting that magical act is unseen um and a drug qualifies there but in the earliest days it was specifically effects magical effects created from the use of drugs and if we look at um fragment 224 of the chaldean oracles uh it's it's a recipe for statue animation particularly for animating a Hecate statue. And it calls for savage rue. You're to construct this thing out of savage rue. Well, savage rue, Pliny the Elder tells us that rue has two forms. There's wild or savage rue, and then there's cultivated rue. Cultivated rue is ruda graviolens, which is used as a, a, it's added to wines and Roman times for, to increase the bouquet um, it's used in, in some Catholic settings for uh, th throwing holy water um, and benedictions, whereas savage rue, wild rue, isn't really related to the rue de graviolens at all. They believed it was, but it's not. It's actually a plant called Paganum harmala, and this is also known as Syrian rue, and this substance is often burned as incense. It's consumed. Um, what it is is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And not only is it psychoactive in its own right, but when it's combined with tryptamine hallucinogens, such as dimethyltryptamine or even psilocybin, it increases their action, um, sometimes makes them orally active where previously they wouldn't normally have been. And in the case of psilocybin mushrooms, it triples their effects. Uh, it makes makes one gram feel like three grams. And this is the main ingredient used in the construction of this statue. Now, there's a potion of immor immortality that is associated with myth. Uh, I always mess this guy's name up. Mithrodites. Um, this emperor who was obsessed with becoming immortal. And there's this potion he had come up with or that someone had come up with for him that one recipe was found for it. And the ingredients called for rue. That was one of the ingredients. And it was found near where, I believe it's called Costa, um, the place in Italy where they found the Eleusinian temple the temple to Hecate, Demeter, and Persephone, where they actually found ergot in the dental calculus of a skeleton there. And they also found these wine vats where they were brewing some kind of a wine, and next to it, they found the remains of all of these frogs and lizards. And, you know, 10 years ago, this wasn't even really a thing. But now you can you can get online and look up all of these cases especially in India, 
where people are becoming addicted to lizards, house geckos. And <laughs> there's something in them that is psychoactive and is often paired with opiates. We see it that often used by opiate addicts in conjunction with opiates. But when Hecate is describing how to make this statue, um, she says to use this savage rue, and she says to use it in conjunction with the geckos found about the house, these lizards. Um, so that's a good indication that drugs are being used, even if they're not being taken internally. You got to you got to think magical plants aren't always consumed. You know, merely having them as a a, a talisman as a um, it, as the agent that animates the statue when we talk about it animating it these things are drugs because they contain um neurochemicals they contain things that make us have experiences so when we're saying animate a statue what better way to do that than put something in it that is a neurotransmitter you've li you're literally giving it mind in a sense um but were drugs consumed? Well, as you mentioned with the, the white unguent of the tree of life, what they're doing with that soul ascent going up through the various levels of the heavens, that's, that's a theurgic model that comes straight out of porphyry and that worldview of the soul leaving the body. To have it be affected by the rubbing of this ointment on the body is a clear indication that that ointment was probably hallucinogenic. And that we have parallels in um, witches' flying ointment, which is, you know, granted much later, but it's the same notion, infusing an oil or an ointment with psychoactive psychedelic properties and then covering the body with it to cause this reaction. And that reaction being, in the case of witches, flight. To the sabbath well that's that soul flight motif whether or not witches were really doing that that idea wasn't pulled out of a vacuum you know so i think it's very not only possible but probable that drugs played a role in this and we know from empedocles for instance a pre-socratic philosopher in his fragments he tells his student that he will teach him all manner of pharmaca all manner of doing drugs, doing using plants, drugs for magic. And he follows this up by saying, and I'll teach you how to take the strength or the soul of a dead man out of Hades and bring him back up here to earth. Well, that sounds a lot like that Cenocephalon plant in the book of Jew, where they hold this right. plant in their mouth that um, also, according to Pliny the Elder, was used to conjure the soul of Homer out of Hades, very, very close. And, and, and in my thinking, probably there's a good case it's the same plant. So does this mean all those animated statues are actually just animated in their in their uh, in their drug trips? <laughs> I always wondered about animated. Well, statues. it's not uh, it's not like um, Talos and Jason and the Argonauts where the statue turns his head all of a sudden. Yeah, it's more the the, the animated with the statues, Daniel. That's just bringing the god into the statue, right? And, and but the, there are accounts of it having taken movement after that. Oh, so it is like Talos and Jason. And ah. <laughs> when when Proclus Proclus, there's one story where he animates a statue of Hecate in her temple, 
and this causes the statue to smile and torches light up from behind her. You know, she comes alive. And there's a great lecture um, online by, by Hanegraaff where he's talking a lot about statue animation and shows how in the, this process of animation, oftentimes incenses, which in theurgy, they, they're the suntamata, the, the tokens of these gods, they each have their own incense, just like when, with modern magic, where every god has correspondences. Um, the only difference being that in the theurgic model, it doesn't correspond to the god, it is the god, only kind of in a fractal form, a manifest form. But he points out that these incenses that are burned in the process of animating these cult statues are oftentimes entheogenic and psychedelic. So there's a good chance in those cases that they did see these statues do any number of activities, you know, <laughs> get them to clean our house. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, take some, some compelling, some persuasion. Some, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wonder what they would have thought of robots combined with AI these days, you know, AI enabled robot um, that would definitely qualify as an animated statue. Right. Mm -hmm. And we see that in, in Homer even, um, where um, I believe it's Hephaestus, he constructs uh, these different robots. He constructs one for a king. It was two of them, two golden dogs that patrol his castle, his kingdom, just like a a real dog. But he's he's made them, and they move around and have autonomy. And there's another one where these golden girls, golden women are made that for the person interacting with them, they could not tell that they weren't ensouled, that they basically were ensouled, you know, animated, which is what anima means. Anima puts soul into it. So that's a very old idea. Um, and and, and uh, um, Aristotle, you know, he talks about the problem of, of animated statues. So even in his day, he, he mentions how there are people who can make these uh, these machines that are apparently like perpetual motion machines, which he he connects to these these contrivances because they appear to move on their own. Something in them that's making them move is perpetually moving, you know, the, to generate it, to fuel it. Uh, so, it, you know, it'd be great if we had some some plans of those, some kind of pictures or something, but. They're talked about as early as Homer, which I find very interesting. Definitely. Where's that? There's that Greek artifact that had all sorts of gears and so forth. I they think it was a navigational tool. That yeah, I know way, what you mean. Looks like yeah. a, a compass kind of thing. Yeah, it was way beyond what we normally would think of of the technology they had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, as we get towards the end of the interview, you mentioned uh, Peter Kingsley. Daniel, and I know a lot of his work has been, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say debunked, but uh, pushed back on uh, the idea of shamanism and the, the Greek culture, like Pythagoras meeting the Mongol shaman and all that. But what is your stance? What is What, what do you see as uh, valid of uh, shamanism coming into Greece and what is invalid? Well, I think I... I... I love Kingsley and I think his same here, whether, yeah. whether we have Mongolia in the picture, um, Siberia is close enough. And that's, that's the North beyond the North. That's the Hyperborean North. If we just go North 
from where the, these things are taking place. We have the Scythians and the Thracians, which are sh have their own shamanic practices. But if we go that next step and end up in Siberia, well, that's where we really, not only is that where we get the word shamanism from, from the Tungusic people of Siberia, but all of the practices that we recognize as genuinely shamanic were culled from that region. And if I was going to boil shamanism down to one thing, one practice, I would say it would be uh, soul flight. And soul flight is predicated on this model of the axis mundi, this, this, this pole that connects all of the worlds and the soul is able to travel up or down on. Now with the pre-Socratics, we only see them traveling down on it. With the Platonists, we only see them traveling up on it. So temporally, it's divided, but in my in my estimation, it's the same phenomenon. And I think it's safe to say that that is an example of shamanism. When you have someone like Empedocles taking Homeric verses and then singing them in songs with a, with an instrument and causing people to go into trances and which there's actually a story um, associated with him where he plays this verse, sings this verse and plays on his instrument and is able to change this man's demeanor who is literally in a state of, he's about to murder someone, but, but Empedocles can, he stops that and, it's so effective that the man becomes his closest follower after this. So when we're talking about using something like this in this kind of a way and pairing it with ideas of soul flight and um, interaction with divine beings, I don't see the problem with calling it shamanism. I get that, you know, to be fair, shamanism exists only in Siberia, but that doesn't make the practice look any different than curanderismo and and right. in Central America and and the Yatromantea in Greece. We're looking at a universal phenomenon that seems to be in the prehistory of every religion. The more um, civilized, for lack of a better word, these religions get, the further these practices get away from us. But I don't see the harm in using an umbrella term like shamanism to discuss them. No, I, I agree with you 100%. Shamanism is a spiritual modality. It's something that Jung or Jan Culiano would agree is like reincarnation. It's part of the, it's a building block in our psyche. It's always going to be there in every culture. If we go to another planet, the idea of the astral flights and the underworld and all that. And quick question. I agree going down is the same as going out. The Merkaba Jews, whenever they took their flights, they, they said on purpose, we are going down. And um, great point. Yeah. Do you, why were they looking for the dark goddess? Because I know in Homer, uh, Odysseus, he is trying to avoid Persephone because people, again, think Persephone's love and life, but she took her job seriously. She was a girl boss. In other words, <laughs> Hades was the girl of the god of the underworld. She was the god of death. She was going to F you up if she found you. So why were these guys looking for the dark goddess underworld? <laughs> uh, I think in their model 
Olympus is off limits. Man just doesn't go there. Uh, You know, we take it for granted in a post-Christianized world where, you know, my father's house has many mansions. What When Christ descends to Hades in the Christian creed and releases the people down there, he's doing two things. First, he's confirming the Greek cosmo conception by saying Hades is real because I'm going there. So he confirms it. But then he says, I'm going to let the saints and holy people out and bring them up to heaven, basically bring them to Mount Olympus where they will get to live as a god. So after confirming it, he then turns it on its head and overthrows it kind of. Um but prior to that kind of approach, there's only one way to go, and that's down. Now, of course, Plato brings in this new idea that man can travel up and unite with the gods, but you still have to come back down, you know, that you still um, have to return. And as Yambuk has said, we have to know our station, and man fills a gap in the chain of being that if we don't, if we're not here, really in this body, then then the piece, the machine doesn't work. But to maintain that connection between spirit and matter, man has to travel up and then back down and up and back down. And and, and epistrophe and pruodos, as Proclus called it. Um, but for those early pre-Socratics, I don't think they had the hubris to say, I'm going to climb Mount Olympus. But right. <laughs> it was fully part of their their worldview that they could get into the underworld and back out if they had enough, enough Hermes to work with, you know, yeah. or Hecate. One of the the, 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 if they had gone through the mysteries, the Eleusinian mysteries, they would have been given a picture of the world, granted a secret picture where a person got in and back out of the underworld. And that opens a door. That gives permission for those practitioners to follow in those footsteps. But we don't have a door opening to Olympus at that point. Makes perfect sense. And yeah, I have to ask you this, or maybe you can speak to it, but you are in uh, the holy land of Tupelo, as far as I'm concerned. As uh, many know, the good people at Inner Traditions are putting out my book on uh, Elvis Presley and his occult side and of course i make the case that he was a shaman even and i bring a lot of scholarship that shows that what he was doing on stage and in the 60s when he got into yogananda and theosophy he was just doing shamanism he was a our country's shaman if you would and i went down to memphis daniel last november and it was an incredible experience but we had two choices we could either go to tupelo or we could go to Clarksdale and see uh, the crossroads with Robert Johnson. And my friends and I decided we're going to go give the devil his dues, if you know what I mean. But I do hope to go there. Have you been to the King's house? Oh yeah. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time there. Um, We, my, my wife, she recently, um, I say recently, it's been over a year ago, graduated from nursing school and we did it. We took, did her photo shoot down there at oh, the wow. place. 
and um, my son loves the cars down there. There's fantastic vehicles, Elvis's cars. Uh, but yeah, I agree. This is the Holy Land. Um, <laughs> I absolutely love it. I was born in Memphis, oh, and I, wow. my wife was born here in Tupelo. And so when I moved here, it was to to uh, to be with her. And once I got here, I just it's such a unique place. It really is outside of time in a lot of ways. We things don't move here and progress here the same way they I've lived all over. And every time I come back here, it's, it's like leaving time. I don't know how else to, to put it, but if you do, I can't wait for that book, by the way, that's, that's right up my alley. And if you do make it back down, um, Oh, for sure. Come see me and I'll take you to some of the lesser known haunts. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Sooner. Yeah. Probably be sometime this year. So, uh, yeah, I got to go pay homage to uh, the Bethlehem. Yeah, I'd, as I tell people, Elvis Presley is the great magician of America. His magical system was rock and roll. His tempo was Vegas. Uh, <laughs> and I, I can just drop, that's a mic drop, because Vegas is the true theurgy temple of the American psyche. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like our our uh, our theater of of Dionysus. Yes, it is indeed. <laughs> Very but, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, look forward to advance. Any last questions as we uh, wrap this up? Yeah. Um, um, as far as uh, Plato is concerned, in the Timaeus, uh, did he postulate that the afterlife people would rise in, instead of going to Hades? Did he contradict uh, you know Greek uh, mythology? Not in. Uh, it's been a while since I've read all the dialogues. I don't remember anything like that in the Timaeus, but in the Phaedrus, he very clearly discusses that ascent while alive. He, he doesn't spend a lot of time yeah. after death, but again, in at least two or three different dialogues, Hades is allegorized and we are in Hades right now. We're there. So there's nowhere else to go except up and he definitely talks about going up but rising from the dead i don't recall that in plato yeah and of course the allegory of the caves uh, they're going up that's right from into the caves that, that's yeah. right mm -hmm. and he yep. was a proponent of reincarnation so you have that uh -huh. you, you could definitely make that argument there's plenty of that if you want to call rising from the grave reincarnating we could make that argument i think that'd be safe yeah, of course, that's kind of a bubbling up and down again, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And the other mm -hmm. quick thing I wanted to ask you was, do you think that the Old Testament's admonition against the worshiping of idols was connected with the Greek statue animation? Statue animation in general, you know, because it's not limited to Greece. We see it in, in India. We see it in uh, oh. Chaldean lore. Um, statue animation is is a fairly universal um, uh process if you get a chance and the, the the listeners want to check it out you can get on on youtube I, I the the actual term escapes me but there's you can watch this ritual of them instilling i want to say it's a statue of krishna with prana which prana is the eastern counterpart to what we would call numa or anima but they're instilling it with prana to animate it and they show the whole process of of burying it as though it's dead and pulling it back out and you know basically treating it as a living being 
and and this survives even today in um, African religions, especially uh, Palomayombe, where they have the central object of their ritual is this nganga pot, and this nganga pot is basically an animated statue. It's constructed with animal parts and and plant parts and stones that are all, we could say they were the Suntamata and the Sumbola, the tokens and signatures and symbols of the, the gods, the Mpungu, they're meant to catch something of. And they go so far as to baptize these things, you know, as making them Christians, basically. Um, so yeah, the, it, it's a universal concept, and I think the universality of it is definitely part of what caused Old Testament thinking to reject images in any form as idols. Idol, it, it, it comes from eidolon, you know, and that's what the, that's what these statues are. They they become the the eidolon of these gods. Um. And in the pseudepigrapha also, you see like with um, Bell and the Dragon, you know, where Daniel destroys the statue um, of the uh, of a, a Middle Eastern deity, um, the same kind of thinking. But yeah, I think you're I think you're, you're correct. That's safe to say that all of this influenced that that reaction. OK, thank you. Yeah, I guess the Hebrews are kind of party poopers. <laughs> with respect to that awesome and um yeah i definitely recommend people to get theurgy theory and practice there's so much more uh daniel goes on great uh tours of the of the he doesn't leave out the hermeticists and other ancient mystics and he really takes us on a great adventure and where outside of people buying your book uh, do you have a website or somewhere you want to send people I have a um, a consulting company that uh, we we're in the process of of getting a website up for Helios Consulting. Um, but until I get that up, if listeners want to keep up with my research and um, I've got a terrible book habit, so to get more books, I sell the old books and I just <laughs> kind of burn through them. And uh, I post those for sale for anybody who would be interested uh, on all of my platforms. So you can find me on Facebook, um, Instagram, and on X as just as PD Newman. Um, and feel free to reach out to me with any questions or comments because uh, I absolutely love to to nerd out on this stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Vance. Thanks for keeping us company. Oh, it's great. Now I know the way back up to the uh, Pleroma, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for bringing this book and uh, good luck with all your projects. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to meet you, gentlemen. Likewise. Same here. And there you have it, ya shining crazy diamonds. Daniel is killing it with his work. I'm sure the urge to theurge must be swelling within you. For all subs, don't go anywhere. As mentioned in the intro, twin storms disrupted our interview, even as Daniel and I were on opposite parts of the country. So, 
As a bonus, I'll include an interview with Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman on his book, A Theurgist Book of Hours. It's another killer interview. Consider this a mini workshop. For all non-subs, please become a patron at Patreon, an AB Prime member, or a Red Circle subscriber. For the important and almost necessary bonus, if you want to grasp theurgy and neoplatonism fully. And it does help grow this red pill cafeteria. Don't forget the Virtual Alexandria Academy and the new Gnostic Tarot, which has been selling very well. For all subs, let us to our bonus with Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.